Welcome to Transmissions from the Evil Lair, the official podcast of the Brotherhood of Evil Geeks. What's up, everybody? This is Seamart doing the intro duties on this brand new episode of Transmissions from the Evil Lair. Today, we've got an awesome show for you. Undies of Wendy and myself sit down and talk with Uncle Yo. Uh, he's a comedian that you may have seen at some cons around. Uh, he's done stuff all over the country, uh, mostly anime cons and stuff like that. But uh, he's been all over the place recently. Uh, as far as you know, local to us, he was a Genericon uh, over at RPI back in February. I think that's where Undies of Wendy met him for the first time. Uh, and eventually, uh, we got him on to come on to the show. Uh, so hope you enjoy it. It's our talk with Uncle Yo. Transmissions from the Evil Lair. Uh, what's going on, everybody? This is Seamart, and joining me here in the Evil Lair tonight, I have... Undies of Wendy. Uh, that means this is Transmissions from the Evil Lair. Uh, we have a very special guest joining us tonight. Uh, I feel uh, I feel a special kinship with this, this crossover between comedy and, uh, you know, geeky, nerdy stuff. Uh, we have the one and un- only... Excuse me, let me stumble all over that. <laughs> the one and only Uncle Yo. Yay! Greetings and beatings. It's very nice to be joined on the uh, Den of Evil Geeks. Always, always a pleasure to stomp around someone else's volcano lair, play with some of the the cyborg minions, and uh, you know, just just get the branding on the on the nameless haps and minions. <laughs> Our microphone does kind of look like it could be a cyborg minion. We have heard many many jokes. strategically placed. Uh, yeah, you know. many people say it looks a lot like Ultra. What Ultron's penis would look like. So that's that's, <laughs> that's a lot of what we get when we have people. And with just as many vibrating settings. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Wait till it glows. That's all I can say. <laughs> it holds the infinity infinity gem of mass and or matter. <laughs> uh, but if uh, anyone out there who might not be familiar with Uncle Yo. Uh, he is uh, specifically the geeky, uh, nerdy comedian. Um, uh, if you are local uh, and you're listening to this, you will know Uncle Yo from Genericon, because that's where I know Uncle Yo from, and I thought he'd be great to have on the podcast. <laughs> so how did you... Uh, always always a pleasure to get into Genericon. I was going to say, how did you how did you get into Genericon? Ooh, same uh, same way that I, that I got into a lot of things um, my very first year. Uh, the first thing that ever had occurred to me in sort of an awakening of the convention circuit itself, I'd gone to the New York Comic Con, and this was my junior year, so very few people know me for the raccoon-style ponytail I used to grow out of the back of my head on a dare. (laughs) I... I did the worst possible thing, which is going to Comic Con under the expectation that if you have a new idea, people are interested for it. Oh, yeah. The thing is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the thing is, uh, specifically Comic-Cons, they, f- they follow the same way as uh, New York City itself, which is you don't go for anything new. You go there because you're already famous and well-to-do enough to have a space there. <laughs> so you it up in a sea of like other more distracting stuff that people want to see. Like. Yeah, so there's me and my friend Lowell Greenblatt walking around with our, our demo scripts for our first 22-page indie comic. And all we had to find, really, was just someone else with a, a trickle down their sleeve and a deadpan glare in their eye and, and another artist, if at all possible. <laughs> but I, I was so comfortable because everyone in costume was dressed as something that I had grown up watching. I mean, I had essentially been raised by the television, by uh, anime, by comics, going off the beaten path as often as I could to identify with these larger-than-life characters. I sat in on a panel run by Anime Next that's no longer done, sadly, called the Anime Parliament. The the, the basic format, you set up something, produce it, and, and present it to the audience, and the panelists played devil's advocate. So I stood up and said that, as we all have run through Final Fantasy VII at that time. Millennials, just so you know, this was the first time it was released. 
I, I made the argument that Cloud Strife should have his Chocobo breeding license revoked for all the inbreeding that has to happen for you to get the Golden Chocobo. <laughs> I had such a blast. The guy said, have you ever heard of a... Generation. <laughs> upon generations. It got, it got weird and it got dirty. I'm not even sure how the Golden was able to follow basic orders. And I think it was VG Cats that would later release a, a t-shirt um, claiming that joke onto its own. But the guys running it said, have you heard of Anime Next? We're a convention that deals only with anime. Now, for me, this was 2007. There, we did not know that there was this con, that there was this circuit. And just a light went off in my head. Uh, I was able to get in relatively cheap by rooming with about eight other staff members and then just giving hours over a weekend to guard doors, be security, check badges. Live in the convention the only hive. Thing, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the only thing I knew to do was be loud for a long time about cartoons. And from there, you do one or two shows, you get a demo disc together, you mail that out, and before you know it, you take over a, a small circuit, if you will, a small area. And for, my, and for me, that was southeastern Pennsylvania. I, I'm a Bucks County boy born and raised, uh, right in the, the new town, New Hope, uh, pre-colonial area. Okay. And once I moved to New York City, it became a lot easier to use public transportation to take on the Northeast. So the last three, four years have really... I place, and I'm always amazed when conventions choose to have me back year after year. I, I try to, if anything, carve myself a niche, and to, in order to sneak uh, just will debilitating uh, mind control chemicals into the the beverages of various staff. <laughs> That's how they we need do it. Too. Me. I mean, they become yeah. dependent on me. Hypnotism uh, works well, also. We find <laughs> subliminal messages, but isn't that what henchmen are there for? Exactly. <laughs> Um, so what, uh, what, you know, kind of what did you go to first? Were you always, like, uh, someone who was always into, like, you know, geeky, nerdy stuff like comics and, you know, anime? Uh, or were you more of, like, a comedy uh, nerd? i become so much more aware that stand-up comedy becomes the medium of storytelling I choose to go into what I'm into at the moment. Like, I will go back and forth into phases between comic books that I've laid down, uh, uh, DC ended the Blackest Night run. I was like, all right, that's the pinnacle of everything Green Lantern can go. Let's set it down for a while. Then I went into indie comics and back into anime. Then I go back into tabletop RPGs. And 2016 has been a, a huge RPG run for me with Genericon giving me a two-hour panel space to run Dread. It's a horror survival RPG with no character sheets, no dice, no cards you pool. The only mechanic is a shared Jenga tower from which everyone pools based on the danger and difficulty of the task you're trying to do. So I ran this great Walking Dead scenario. They gave me two hours to do an independent panel called Beyond D&D, all about the quick-to-learn, quick-to-play games that are perfect for a weekend-long setting. And every con I've been approaching has, has been letting me run games like Baron Munchausen, which is a, oh, wow. a, essentially... A, yeah, it's it's a storytelling RPG where you can call your friends out on their bullshit using a poker mechanic. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of like the, uh, the almost like a Terry Gilliam movie, I believe is the one who. Uh, yes, it is. You're the first person to realize that it was a Terry Gilliam movie yeah. from 1986. <laughs> the key, yeah. the key being, if you set up with a box, like when we do it at uh, at PonyCon, we set up that all of the barons, everyone playing, is from Equestria, so they have to answer story prompts within the last season or featuring some of the characters from the con that they're there for. Otherwise, Baron Munchausen is a wonderful gateway RPG for actors who want a little more structure or for overstructured guys coming from D&D or World of Darkness or GURPS that just want a little more flexibility and freedom, and it's a great RPG gateway for comedy guys, for improv guys. Yeah, there's definitely a, like, a crossover area there in terms of like creativity. Think of like being a dungeon master. You have to be thinking on your feet. Like... Think, think about being a dungeon master. <laughs> Only on this podcast. I'm saying it with very limited you know, uh, D&D experience and RPG experience in general. Um, but like, uh, you know, there's, 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 there's a, you know, a storytelling ability in, a, in both of those, like in comedy and in like doing stuff like that. <laughs> not only not only that, but one of the things to, to keep in mind of, of when you are GMing, when you are live behind the screen, you've got to go out of your way to make sure that everybody is somehow engaged, that all the players yeah. and their player characters have a stake in that story, which really makes you both the 
set up for the logistics of a, uh, of running a live event, and then you're also kind of the only floor manager and the quality assurance guy, and you're also, by the way, voicing the rest of the universe that the players are interacting with. So no pressure, guys, at all. <laughs> Which is why I, I love talking about some of the, the indie RPGs that put more storytelling, control, and power back into the hands of the players. Because when someone has a good idea and everybody latches on and grabs it, becomes a repeating joke, it just adds to the power of that story. Like, I love playing the games that are like Tokyo Pop Explosion or Inspectors or Danger Patrol, where the complications come from the other players giving the players ideas. Like in Inspectors, you only roll D6s. If you roll well, the player describes the outcome and turns it over to the next player for the next action. It's only when you roll poorly, the DM hoses you down and tells you what happens. So you could definitely, I mean, there's a certain degree of improv involved in, you know, sort of RPGs. So that's kind of interesting. It's a really interesting take on it. Too, there is totally there there are a handful of times where my players have gone a direction where I've had to step away from the table and dis- and discuss with my longtime story inspirational friends uh the Walker brothers which is Johnny and his other brother who happens to be named Johnny Blue <laughs> you know a, a couple of ice cubes into that and figure out what the hell am I going to do with these people because <laughs> I've had I I've just you know it's always fun when the when the players throw you that curveball and go off the beaten path and just decide well we'll just ride the cows through the middle of town screaming these are your children they've been turned from from they've been transformed by evil wizards who run your school to which the school goes oh those are the people that we all locked in the basement earlier tonight that crawled their way out of the sewer those are <laughs> screaming stinky poop people riding cows we should put them back in the dungeon. <laughs> You've solved our vagrant and food problem. Yay! Yay! <laughs> problem was the players were right, so everybody ate well that night. <laughs> so, um, you we were talking about improv, um, and you do MC a lot of these costume contests. Are there, is there ever a time where you're MCing and uh, someone does something and you're kind of like, whoa, and like you need to step in as... Uh, an MC. You're like refereeing the event, basically. Oh, yeah. It happens. <laughs> I've done it before. Yeah. Oh, no. Without, without a hope is that you have a backstage team, which are, are lining up the next people, and my job is to read the card and not botch the Japanese too badly, which is why I like doing an anime convention, because Japanese usually is written out as phonetically as possible, and you just have to hope that Hooked on Phonics works for you. There have been several horror stories in which whoever was running either vanished or there was no one backstage, so you're back trying to herd cats covered in in pleather and homemade Home Depot brass steampunk wings, trying to get them lined up backstage while you're keeping the crowd entertained on stage. And you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth in, in that situation. But the thing with live events is you don't get good unless you're thrown into the fire, thrown in the middle of the dark woods with only a, a flashlight and your wits. Absolutely, and, yeah. And many times when we're backed into a corner, that's when we're at our... Yeah, that's when the creativity comes out. Like you, you're, you're forced. forced. Yeah, basically. literally, you're forced. I remember the first. You live- don't have a choice because the show goes on, kids. Yeah, <laughs> like whether you come out with something or not, you've got time. This to is follow. happening, yeah, and this yeah, is yeah. a thing that has to be handled. I, I think back to our first live panel, and like, like to me, what a disaster it was. Like, it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> you thought it was really bad. Yeah, like I had like, like some of the guys I had with me at the time were just like silent. On stage, I could tell they were very nervous about doing something public. So, like, as soon as we get on stage to do like just a regular podcast, something we've done literally a billion dozens times. Of times before, yeah, they just like kind of like locked up, and I had like three mannequins on stage and like, you, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I had a good guest that day who told a fantastic story in front of like several teenagers about getting into an orgy at Dragon Con. <laughs> um, but it's stuff like that that saved the show, though. Like in my opinion, it really was that was that that really did make it. I mean, but I, now, like now, to me, we've done a bunch of these. Like, I can do it a lot easier. And now. it's like, a fun story to tell. Yeah, too. exactly. I mean, like, you remember that time where there was an uncomfortable orgy story, and then it then our panel was over because we didn't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, yeah, this weekend I was doing a convention and I started doing trivia, 
and uh, I stupidly didn't tell people to raise their hand to answer the trivia question, and I got, like, bum-rushed at the microphone, and somebody dressed up as Batman literally had to stand in front of me to protect me from almost getting punched in the face by someone who was very excited <laughs> about trivia. So you literally never know what's going to happen at these things. So yeah. it's just a matter of, you know, you got to figure it out. <laughs> when I pictured this moment, I thought it would be way cooler when Batman saved me. Yeah, I know, yeah. like literally getting punched in the face by a nerd about Doctor Who trivia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's that damn box of evil. Ah. But... um. You've been on. You were on Heroes of Cosplay, weren't you? I feel like maybe I was never on uh, Heroes of Cosplay. Cosplay? I swear that maybe you were. Are you interrogating him now? It's so scary. You are. To my knowledge, no. no. Maybe I was. I I may have been in the background and not known of it because uh, I chose not to watch that show, knowing uh, knowing the the colon that is reality television. (laughs) I mean, if if it's given us half of our presidential elections left standing. You know how dangerous that thing is. Although I, I do have a terrible story about that. Is um, a couple years ago. Now, when I say a couple, we're talking over six. I was emceeing the second ever New York Anime Festival cosplay masquerade, and before she got massive, like Chris Hardwick had massive, yeah. Yaya Han came on with two fantastic show-winning costumes. It was based off of Carmilla, and I believe her name is Charlotte, from Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust. And for the, the Victorian costume designers out there, this was a, a wet dream of any cosplayer because it's gravity-defying makeup, hair, the dresses are extra poofy. It's magnificent. There, there are more hoops than a Cirque du Soleil act. I'm emceeing it, having a blast. Cut to the first season of Heroes of Cosplay. My father calls me. Are, do you know any of the girls that are on this? And as always, it takes him four or five guesses to get a name out. I eventually guess the Heroes of Cosplay, the one on, on the, the CFI network. Because by this point, sci-fi had switched over. Sci-fi had switched over to its 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 Pomeranian incarnation today, which I call CFI. And goes, so you know, you know Yaya Han? I worked with her at, at a convention. I definitely know who sh- who she is. Why? What's up? Every, they need to stop being so mean to her. She puts everything into it, and I think <laughs> she should win. I, oh, my God. I have to explain editing to my father. This so is going to take so long. Alternate dimension of some sort. So <laughs> many people don't understand like how much ed- like how severely edited these things are. Like- because you'll see them in six different conventions. That clearly exists at nine different months over the year. Even worse was having to explain fisting to my father. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, because the dangerous thing is... Kill, like, literally killed to be a fly on the wall in that conversation, <laughs> specifically. You would not have fit. It was in a truck. It was at a, it was at a traffic light. The issue is, <laughs> I know the computer he's using because I put that computer into the living room so that he has to leave his own bedroom so that when my 84-year-old grandmother gets up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, she has to cross the living room to ensure he's in bed at a safe enough hour. And the worst part is I end up having the same conversation with him that I did with my 12-year-old nephew two weeks earlier when he had a sleepover at his friend's house and they discovered scary movies. It was the exact same conversation. I don't know what you saw, but that was make-believe. Some people like to see hobbits in that situation. I don't know what it... I don't know why either. What you saw was a camera trick. Those were actors. They were paid good money for it. No, we will not rent the sequel, and you will... No, you will not tell your mother that I gave you the link. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, yeah, it's basically the same same conversation. (laughs) We are nothing if not the gatekeepers and the knowledge ones. I mean, sometimes you gotta pull a Gandalf and just say, I've shown you the door, but you shall not pass. You are not yet ready to attend Anthrocon. You don't need this. (laughs) Oh my god. Um... (laughs) Yeah, um, so, uh, speaking of conventions, what was your favorite convention that you've ever attended, guested at, or, you know, just been to as, you know, just a regular fan, or cosplayer? Man, oh man, there are, a lot of things peel up because by the end of the convention, you, even if it's something that happens six, seven years in a row, every time I'm leaving Zenkai Con in Lancaster, because that was my first ever convention with the silver tie had the persona up and ready to go was reading from my notes for the full hour or TechoCon out in pittsburgh where the staff has just become such close friends they're practically family 
Um, I, I mean, something that just rings to my mind is this past weekend at Kineticon was my seventh straight year. I was doing so much new programming that would only exist for that weekend, so much prep for that beforehand, putting pressure on myself. It was, it was like my first con all over again, but it was also my sixth year anniversary convention Aww. with my say. And it was a pleasure to see all of the people who I went to college with and have joined me and risen through the ranks of very good panel presenters and personalities at conventions over the last six years to see them take over a full crowd at panel room. Like my friends, uh, Judith and Natalie, over the last few years, they've taken on very various drawing and character design. They ran two hour long LG BT representation in Steven Universe panels met with glorious applause, met, met with wet eyes and wet here to judge, but they've really risen to be able to contain an audience just as well as I can, uh, if at all. So leaving Kineticon this weekend made me realize we're doing okay. We're so much better than when we were. This will be the last year that a lot of my friends staff and run and are in charge of making the show run as smooth as possible. And to watch that show, uh, downtown Hartford, Connecticut shuts down at 4 p.m. on Thursday because it's the insurance capital of America. But now, <laughs> now, now they have the food truck festival right outside of the convention wall. Oh, now we have, awesome. now we have this walkway that takes you straight to your hotels as opposed to crossing the intersection of three major highways. They have fireworks on the river Saturday night. Connecticut, the feels like it welcomes us with open arms. I've heard great things about that convention, too. That's something I want to it's put on my list. It's a beautiful That is, uh, you know, we've only been doing cons for, like, what, three years now, I think? Well, for the website, yeah. yeah but, I mean, yeah. like, as far as... I mean, I've been yeah. going to them since I was yeah. a kid. I mean, um, but, yeah, it is, like, I really do enjoy that, like, family you build, almost, like, people you see all the time, like, you know, you see the vendors and, like, other, you know, artists and stuff, like, people you get really close with because you spend, like, you know, eight to sixteen hours, you know, every couple of months with them, like over a weekend. The last few years, I've been I've been talking a lot on stage about uh, the different spectrums that come from identity. And when we did identity in Steven Universe, I, I it finally dawned on me after several years of all these people, the thousands in front of us, every two of them have something that makes them different from the other, a perfectly legitimate reason to build up a wall but an even better reason to build a bridge because in front of us is this massive demographic representing a certain just geographical area of America. And we're all in front of us, in front of each other, just to talk about one thing, one ideal that is willing to breach all these different gaps, uh, gaps in age, in sexual orientation, in political standpoint. We're all there because one thing spoke to us, and I see that be so beautifully represented. I see walls come down the moment two Naruto cosplayers come back to back, and one, one of them might be a white girl and this massive black guy, and they leap up and hug, Tsunade, Jiraiya, this looks fantastic. You got the tattoo? Here's my tattoo. I made a new friend! <laughs> in, a, in a way that if these two approached each other on the bus, in a way if these two saw each other passing in, in a hall, passing each other on a street, Nothing, nothing but cold stares. And that's what Pokemon Go did this weekend. Oh my it God, suddenly so turned, crazy. It turned every neighborhood insane, yeah. into a journey. I, I, I literally know nothing. I played that one Pokemon game that you had. Well, yeah, for five minutes. So Yeah, I mean, like, I know nothing of Pokemon. And, like, I, all I see, like, on Facebook, everybody, everybody I know is trying to catch these freaking Pokemon. It's great. And it, yeah, I mean, it's in so a way, nice. That it does so much. Like, it even, like, lets you, like, exercise. Like, they're like, get out of your house, nerds. Go yeah, do kind a of thing. a sneaky way to, yeah, like, get, like, yeah. Now, with respect, with all due respect, I remember when uh, Nintendo first tried to get us to exercise with the Wii U. They set us up for self-destruction by giving us the Wiimote controller, which is uh, nunchucks on a garrote wire. And then the next year, they came out, they came out with the Pokemon Walker. If anyone remembers the Poke Walker, it was I a do. Tamagotchi. That was also a Fitbit. If you walked a certain number of miles, you would level up the Pokemon that you stored in your Pokego. We made a fortune and made back our seasonal pass at Otakon one year, duct taping and renting out space on our legs 
to people with pocket walkers. So we had about 50 of these duct taped to our jeans. And at the end of the weekend, I mean, we were like piccolo with weighted clothing. We made $400 that weekend just leveling up people's Pikachus. They have been trying, trying to innovate new ways to make video games active and healthy and getting us outside the house. It was revolutionary. But Americans... But Americans were even more revolutionary because we broke the system by attaching them to cars and dog collars and Little League soccer players. May I uh, and throw in a, just that. a quick uh, correction? I do remember the actual very first uh, attempt by Nintendo to get us moving. Does anybody remember the power pad? What I, I might have done before. Yeah, the power pad was. I got the when I uh, when I first got Nintendo, I got the set with the power pad. It was this plastic mat that you would roll out. On one side, it was like numbers, like a blue and red, you know, number sequence. On one side, it was like also blue and red squares, but it was like for like a dance game that I don't think ever existed. But the other side... That is correct. Yeah, the one with the numbers on it came with this game called Track and Field, where you're supposed to run on this pad and you can like jump and it would make the guy like run and jump on the screen. Uh, But I remember it just devolving into us sitting on the floor hitting the numbers with our fists. I've done that for DDR before, definitely. Um, There's been so many times where uh, I was like, I can't clear this song on heavy in DDR, and I would just plug my controller in and turn the controller upside down and smash all of the PlayStation buttons at once. (laughs) I also broke a lot of controllers that way, (laughs) just FYI to everyone. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah, no, but there's videos, like, coming out. I mean, like you said, like, all these American Mm -hmm. innovations uh, where somebody tied their phone... Because when you get eggs in Pokemon Go, you need to walk a certain amount of steps to get them to hatch. So someone tied it to a ceiling fan and just let it spin. <laughs> That's awesome. It was really great. Someone uh, else speaking had Speaking of American innovation... We are Americans. We and... I was going to say, today I saw we... that uh, Pokemon Go uh, nudes are now a thing. American Oh my god, I have received so many unsolicited diglet pics, it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh my god, are you kidding? Is it like literally I'm like waiting Pokemon I'm waiting for your private areas? Yeah, pretty much. Well I well I had a horsey on my ass over the weekend that somebody uh, retweeted, thankfully. Oh my and god, I, I, I did look. I was able to, to capture a couple of jigglypuffs before they started uh, uh jumping over my pasties. I'll I'll give you that. <laughs> Cosplay burlesque is a is a wonderful thing. <laughs> Cosplay burlesque is really awesome. I've only ever seen one show online. I've never actually been to one. My friend does it, like, (laughs) very frequently. So I watch it. Every time she posts a little thing, it's great. I gotta tell you, the life-changing event was the May the 4th double-act Star Wars show that they did at uh, Rock Bar in uh, New York City. It was maybe eight or nine acts, and it began with my friend Holly Ween doing R2-D2. Now, Holly goes off the beaten path when it comes to burlesque, as in she was wearing metal plates that would only come off when she cut them using an angle grinder to remove her clothing. Are flying into the audience and she just has this great big euphoric open mouth toothy smile. Nine Inch Nails video. That's great. She she has done a Nine Inch Nails burlesque. Yes, all of it worked out perfectly. (laughs) It was a a grand show. My friend friend was in a burlesque society with her. My friend, uh, her burlesque name is Esmeralda May has done shows Yes, we're Oh, Esmeralda May very well. She's at both White Elephant Burlesque and Cosplay Burlesque. She's one of my favorites. I tried calling her earlier today to uh, uh, give her some words of encouragement. She's very... Yeah, she just moved in. She's magnificent. Well, we were we were trying to tell people like she has a very specific uh, following because she's not she's not just a girl who's hugely built. She's also uh, bottom heavy. So she has a very specific fandom that approaches the front of the stage once she gets on. There, there's no ending to it, but one, I think one of my f- favorite recent gags she has this Rufio act and boys and girls if you're not aware of the, the asexual jump charge that uh, awakening that is Dante Bosco's Rufio. So she does a burlesque act to Rufio and it's all worth it. We got that act forwarded to Dante Bosco himself. And he e- he emailed back just his facial reaction, and Esme lost it. It was such amazing validation from the inspiration of the act itself. It's one of those great moments. Yeah, so that's really awesome. Um, I saw her, uh, the Oogie Boogie routine that she did a while back, and that was great. One of my all-time favorites. And it wasn't like... <laughs> 
the typical like one to an oogie boogie song. She used a completely different song, and it okay. was it was mm-hmm. great. She had like a bra that had like bugs on it and everything, because you know, like when he takes off the thing, it's all yeah, like, it's bugs. all like bugs. Yeah, stuff. it was awesome. <laughs> That is one of the hardest, hottest acts to see her do because she's this massive, uh, essentially a beanbag chair wearing a burlap sack. She gets up on there, and as she removes and reveals more of the feminine form, bugs that are now sequenced and covered in glitter fall everywhere until there's only, like, a ladybug over, what do you expect? Until there's a centipede crawling around, what do you expect? And she, she roams off having just shed everything as the ultimate ant queen. It's brilliant. It it's so canonically uh, appropriate. It, oh, what was the other one? Oh, I had a friend lying on her bed. Speaking of um, things covering genitals over Pokemon <laughs> Go, I had a con share text me. Um, people will lie in their beds and look over what's on their hotels. Like Friday morning, we had a crabby that was skittering around the hotel bed, and my fiance turns to me and said, "I told you we shouldn't have gone, Polly. Look at what you brought into this." <laughs> That's My great. convention chair friend showed a shelter, and I don't know if you guys have seen this, it's a clam with a tongue sticking out of it, yep. yes. just sitting over her crotch, and I thought, please take that photo, please keep that photo, please put that somewhere. This needs to be its own Tumblr channel. Inappropriate lickitongs and victory bells. Yeah. I feel that's like very like Japanese humor. Like. Yeah, it really yeah. is. <laughs> I feel like the Japanese would appreciate that. The first Pokemon I caught was right on your junk, though. It was, yeah. It the was, first Charizard. with clothes, but, like, right on... Uh, he was just sitting right in front of me, so the Charmander just popped right up, right <laughs> on his junk. It was great. <laughs> Brings couples closer together. That sounds hot. It does. I was like, come on, you have to stay still. I have to catch this. He's like, me staying still has nothing to... It's not really on me. It's... <laughs> I can move. Char! <laughs> it, it steamed things up a little bit. Fire Pokemon. <laughs> Oh, uh, you're, uh, so I, I'm gonna say you're obviously more of like an improv, uh, fan, you know, influenced than you were like a stand-up comedian. I would like to say that I grew up just on straight-up stand-up and impressions. The yeah. things that really, the things that really stuck with me, um, is going through like old animal books and having a gag for almost everything. It always lent toward um, expression and cartoons. And the thing that stuck with me growing up was Space Ghost Coast to Coast. I was not developed, I was not developed enough when The Simpsons came out to know how smart it was. But Cartoon Planet and Space Ghost Coast to Coast were a, a strange blend of late night talk show and non sequitur, almost improv humor. You didn't necessarily know or show where the gag was going to go, but you knew it, it was something very new. It very much laid down the creative sod that would go into the whole generation that would be recruited by Seth MacFarlane to, to write the non-secular uh, masterpiece that was the first few seasons of Family Guy. And at the same time, we just got HBO, and they would play Dana Carvey's Critics' Choice again oh, yes. and again and again. This was 1996. Carvey was... Everything in SNL. He was both George Bush and Ross Perot, and he was everyone involved in the OJ case. So he was the most topic, topically advanced humorist of his year. And his bit of nothing but impressions couldn't stop watching it, couldn't stop analyzing it, understanding it. It wasn't until, I want to say, high school, I was dating a girl who said, you've got to listen to this guy named George Carlin. Oh, absolutely, so we, yeah. So we read Brain Droppings, and for the first time, someone else was asking the basic lyrical and and syntactual and gram- grammatical questions that I was, but really making it funny. Just even talking about dogs and cats, understanding the same lines. It was great to see someone had the same consistent thoughts and questions. And what a comedian does, beyond anything, is they look for consistency. Are you pro-life or pro-gun? Well, there's seems with that you you just look for consistencies if swelled up and shriveled up mean completely different verbs how are they both going up where's the logic in this countries going down the tubes where are these tubes who installed these tubes is it one tube for every state or is it one massive because we've been playing mario for years and we've never seen states go down the tubes who are these tubes (laughs) 
Um, I, I will say, like, it took me a while to get into Carlin, because, I mean, I, I've always been into comedy, even since I was a little kid, mainly because my dad watched a lot of it, uh, so I was always, you know, right there with him. Um, and, like, Carlin I, didn't really grow on me until around that same time, like, in high school. That's when it really hit me. Like, and I read Brain Droppings probably, I think I was, like, a freshman in college or so, around there. Uh, and, yeah, that book is just, it's amazing, like... I, Carlin Class is, Clown, that album, Class Clown, opens up a brand new set of doors. Yeah. Door head. What's your uh, What's your it's, favorite it's Carlin? Wonderful. The uh, like you know the the seventies Carlin, the eighties like observational Carlin, or the angry you know nineties and beyond Carlin. It was the angry stuff. Uh, it was complete complaints and grievances, which he recorded right after nine eleven, and that was the album that we were in the audience for the live taping of, where he attacked. Oh, you really? Uh, he, yeah, where he attacked a church and uh, politics yes. together. Where he went but after what, uh, the thing about angels, like people believing in angels. All those twenty years of all those drugs will get you some angels, my freaking friends. <laughs> I I you don't know how many times I've listened to that album. I used to like. For a while, go to sleep every night listening to that album. Like, oh my god, that's 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 <laughs> yeah, like uh, that. It's a it's an amazing album. It's just because it's him ranting for the entire duration of the special, maybe you know, an hour or so, uh, and like it's just. I mean, he just tears people down. Like the, where he goes off about yeah. white people. Uh, you know, if uh, if uh, white people are going to burn down uh, black churches, then black people should be able to burn down the House of Blues. Like, oh, God, stuff like that. I, like White people have no reason to sing the blues. Yeah. What are you sad about? <laughs> Hootie and the Blowfish are breaking up. The espresso machine is jammed. Banana Republic ran out of khakis. <laughs> he was one of the first to just bring it up of shut up. And he was bringing up privilege long before we even had the cultural dialogue and context of it. He stayed ahead of his time because he was never satisfied with people who who didn't respect and take care of other people. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm. exactly. Now his his final rant at the end of "Life Is Worth Losing," in which he had described, it goes everywhere because it's surrealist. He talks about a fire that spreads all across America and how the different states react to the fire, but the fire just grows and grows, and it ends up absorbing the earth. It ends up absorbing the fire from the sun, and the universe is rebirthed and explodes. Suddenly, it makes a million planets that have a million Uncle Daves, and Uncle Dave is finally happy. It ends in the strangest, tiniest blip for an unspoken American hero of Uncle Dave, who never got it right. And the structure of it, how it was this meta-narrative that followed every narrative arc, but told of, of nothing but hope. I would take and sculpt that final monologue or that structure into a lot of my ending rants. Uh, at the end of my first DVD, there's a bit called My Ass Versus Your Mom, in which is something I developed when I was 15 of a massive comet is heading toward Earth, and it's discovered by Professor uh, Professor Your Mom. And so everyone panics as your mom is going to crash into the Earth and destroy us all. And then another bigger comet is discovered on a collision course, discovered by uh, Dr. My Ass. So my ass crashes into your mom, and and it ends up saving mankind. And it became a chance to contextualize the little things that we're so happy to get butthurt over on the internet. (laughs) Contextually means just so little, when we could have all just been destroyed that quickly. And I, I end up pulling that longer structure to wrap up a lot of shows. Like In the last four years, I don't think I've ended on a laugh necessarily, but I've ended on some kind of thought. And I, I, I've been hoping to bring it back to, to end on an even bigger laugh. But as I get older, I can't help and get more political and more feminist. I, I have six sisters. And when you're a feminist, it's hard to respect and defend anime. Because I know exactly why I got into Project Echo, the first VHS we ever rented, because they saw it was a cartoon. We didn't know there were going to be bare boobies in the first ten minutes of that anime. And we didn't realize people were going to be just fine with it. Echo wakes up. She puts on she puts on pants. She puts on her bra. She runs out the door with toast in her mouth. And no one stops to just point it out and freak out that there was there was frontal nudity. They just go on with their lives. Oh, it's like women are people too. Oh my gosh, what a concept. We didn't, we didn't get this. And 
it glazes over as you get into more intense stuff like Ninja Scroll, Vampire Hunter D. There's a lot of unnecessary and gratuitous violence against women. This is Japan, the nation that bypassed the nudity clause that the West missionaries, that American missionaries hammered into them, by the way. There was no shame on homosexuality or shame of public baths or public nudity until American missionaries came over. We're sorry. We inadvertently created tentacle porn. But it's hard to it's hard to defend anime as a whole because you can just watch exclusively Miyazaki stuff. But the other stuff is out there. And you can compromise by saying different strokes for different folks, different media. And thankfully, a lot of shows are good at, at, at just giving the booth or the different discussion time. There is a time and place to discuss 18 plus material in anime, just as there's a time to discuss really cute chibi Hamtaro anime. You can, you don't need to see it all as one thing, because if you block it as one ball, you can kick it over the wall and never need to look at it again. But that dis that dismisses the work of Satoshi Kon. That dismisses dismisses the work of Nabashin, of Watanabe, of Yoko Ono. There are many brilliant gems you can pick out because Japan sees animation as a medium of storytelling. They see manga as a medium to tell any story that they can conceive of, as opposed to a genre for kids. Yeah, as the the Western view, you know, it's. Yeah, cartoons are for kids, yeah, and then yeah. DC comes out with these animated movies. Um, like, in particular, one one thing that comes to my mind is recently uh, the Assault on Arkham movie. That movie was not for children. <laughs> like some of the no. animated movies, like okay, like kids can watch it. It's a little violent, but whatever. Like that movie was like there was outright like it was the most. Uh, Quinn Bang Deadshot. I was gonna yeah, say yeah, like you or... saw it, and like I, you never really see that in like Western. Animation, yeah, like it was, yeah. it was strange to me. But. Yeah, you'll find some of it. You'll find some of it back in the uh, back in the eighties with with things like heavy metal, where they were really trying to push the envelope. But the gratuitous violence that that comes in in DC now, they're trying to capitalize as much as they can on the success of Nolan, forgetting that DC could be light, it could be funny. And what breaks my heart is that no writer working DC today is willing to throw us a bone and have fun with it. And you can just see that in... I, I, I talk about her a lot, but the the evolution and push Quinn. Now, if you look around cosplay at Comic-Cons, I dare you to find me a more popular cosplay for girls of, of any race, any weight size, any body type than Harley Quinn. Yeah. The pale health white checker. She started as just a throwaway gag by Paul Dini in the animated series, but we grew up all knowing this is the most pure Batman, which means Harley Quinn must be canon. And DC has tried several competitions where if you want to draw for DC, draw Harley Quinn killing herself in a bathtub because oh Mr. God, J broke her. That. That yeah, yeah. Like job. So they decided we've got to we've got to capitalize on sex appeal because apparently now we realize that Young boys read comic books because there is a chance to see busty women in these porn star poses. Well, how about, said the writers, let's give Batwoman, let's have her propose to her girlfriend in the Gotham City Police Department. No, 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 no. We can't imagine young teenage boys buying that. Have you ever met a teenage boy? Have you ever spoken or seen a teenage boy? We are crack addicts for cleavage. So what they did with Harley Quinn, let's separate her from the Joker. Okay, good, that's strong. They're out of this abusive relationship. Okay, strong. Let's dress her like a bleach-skinned albino, give her a hammer, and basically use her as, as Deadpool with tits. You almost did it right. You were so... Close, because what people don't give Harley Quinn credit for, she's the only character in the Gotham City canon who is sincerely in love, even if it's a dangerous love, and is having, get this, fun. She's having fun being bad and expressing herself. We don't know what's going to come of the suicide movie, but I hope it's one step closer to, give, to giving us the Harley Quinn Poison Ivy remake of Thelma and Louise, because that's oh the movie God, I would. Yes, it looks. I mean, so far it looks at least like it's going to be a little bit lighter. And yeah, fun, like which I think we do need. Like <laughs> after Batman like, vs Superman, which was just like punishingly grim, like for no reason. Bat punch. Yeah, yeah. Bat douche punches 
super douche. Do we need that? Yeah. Do, do we? Did we? Haven't we had a decade of animated films that do that? Yeah, I didn't, it wasn't anything new. And to me, I, the way that I described it, and a lot of other people have described it, is just a giant, nearly two-hour trailer for the other movies that are coming. For Justice League, it yeah. would be a very hollow, like just hollow and grim. I can't remember like a single like good detail about it. Nothing was quotable. Nothing was, you know. Nothing sticks out of my mind except for Wonder Woman. <laughs> Literally, that was the only thing I cared about the entire movie. That's why I sat through it. Um, but yeah, no, what you said about Harley Quinn, all of that is, you know, you basically preach it to the choir over here. Um, you have to give her credit for pulling in something that DC never thought, okay? It took DC 50 years to realize girls like comic books. They want to be represented, they want to be respected. And that's totally fine, but you can give them something other than a sexually charged character to identify with. And at least they finally caught on. Girls spend a lot of money on something that they like if you make it tasteful and intelligent. And this is what breaks my heart, is that within the DC trilogy, the Holy Trilogy, it is Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. I pose this question to you guys. Can Wonder Woman fly? Yeah, you just you just you just hesitated. It depends on the writer. It depends on yeah, the incarnation. Say, we don't even have her power. Oh, we don't oh, even have her powers. There you have it. We don't even have her powers set still, or even her origin. That's how little they've given her. And some of the best Wonder Woman stories have been accidental. They were they were the highlight of uh, the uh, Brian Azariel's run of uh, when she became the the new. Um, God of War, because it was like the last child of Zeus has been launched on Earth. The heartbreaking part was, that was the best Wonder Woman story, and Wonder Woman barely made any interesting choices as a character. It was different characters coming on screen to punch other things. We have the, we have such great potential, and at least now, we're getting a female Green Lantern, which we have had for many years before, but she's getting a focus and getting her own comic. Marvel Comics, has already been ahead of the time by giving us the the new uh, Muslim Miss Ms. Marvel, by giving us all the all the new teens, and by giving us not superheroes who are girls, girls who are becoming characters, people who are girls. Yeah, not necessarily the girl version of this character, or you know. Yeah, oh, I was just uh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, Mar, I know I'm a huge, huge Marvel fan, and I don't. I, I'm going to be the one to throw them under the bus. But they've not exactly been, you know, innocent of the same crimes that uh, you know DC has committed. Somebody pointed out I was reading today that uh, you know they're talking about the new Iron Man. I uh, was going to be this girl, Riri Williams, and they it's were saying, be you know, awesome. yeah, they're saying it's you know great, it's, you know it's a new character, you know, woman of color. Um, but like somebody was like, well, when is the when is you know they were kind of upset that it was a man. It's Brian Michael Bendis writing the story. Like you know why can't we get a woman to write this? So like wait a minute, why can't we get a black woman to write this? And they're like wait a minute. Has, any, has a black woman ever written for Marvel? Has, has a black woman ever? No, they're like, uh, Oh my god. No. Not only that, but Brian Michael Bendis writes some of my favorite uh, girl-run characters. When he did, uh, I forget which version of the Avengers it was, but he wrote Ms. Marvel as a person. He prescribes to the, the, um, uh, the George R. R. Martin rule of writing women, which is you write a person. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Which is Ms. Marvel Ms. Marvel was just as quippy with Wolverine and the thing as Spider-Man was. There was a point where where I remember um New York City was being attacked by all these demons left and right and they started having a a, a a talk that Ms. Marvel has never seen Ghostbusters and she yeah, was in that. a coma. I was in a coma for what Five years. All right. What are you guys doing Saturday? Well, if we're if we're done with these demons and the city's not destroyed, all right. Let's get Carol to sit down and watch Ghostbusters. It's great. <laughs> it's beautiful that they bring Ghostbusters brings people together, except for when it doesn't. But <laughs> well, we're um, on that topic. What's your take on the? Uh, no, on the don't new one? change the topic. Well, we we you brought up Ghostbusters. Hey, are I'm you sorry? sorry. Uncle Yo brought up Ghostbusters. Um, I was just gonna say. <laughs> With Wonder Woman, with your topic on Wonder Woman, um, someone who takes her namesake from Wonder Woman, like literally, I am the undies of Wendy, which is her one her underwear, her wonderwear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. But um, <laughs> for a friend. long time, I 
literally could not stand her because I couldn't find a version of her where I felt like she had any substance. I, I watched JLU. That's kind of like where I started getting into comics. Um, and yeah. she was like almost obnoxious on that show. Like, you know, it was just kind of like she was caught in a love triangle with, with Batman and Superman. That was her role, almost. She did some badass stuff on it, don't get me wrong, but I always kind of felt like she was a throwaway character until I actually read good comics of her, and I was like, wow, they can write her really well, but why doesn't anybody do that? And then, yeah, so... Why is it so difficult to give her a place? She is just as inhuman as the rest of the Justice League. It's very difficult to look over any Justice League lineup and find and find what Marvel does. Someone put it to me brilliantly that DC is about gods disguising themselves as human, as playing masquerading as human. Marvel is about regular people ascending to herohood and learning how to be gods, learning how to be role models to themselves, to their teammates. Many of the DC characters don't grow and learn and struggle. My favorite DC comic was uh, Emerald Dawn. It was this Hal Jordan origin story in which he got drunk, he got a friend uh, paralyzed after he crashed a car, so it was a redemption story for him. Sinestro is taking him out of prison at night to teach him, during the night shift, how to be a Green Lantern. This broken guy with plenty of willpower to serve his time and to be a, uh, a decent uh, citizen willing to go down the path of, of, of redemption versus what DC shoves Hal Jordan into as the Swiss Army Knight of problem solutions. <laughs> because you can't tell me you can't tell me Batman has any more or less willpower than a Green Lantern. Saying it's powered by willpower is ridiculous. Every superhero that faces their fear, every superhero that gets back after being stabbed, after being thrown against a brick wall, that is willpower. Anytime they, they stand up and be a hero, that's sheer willpower. And Saying that's that's a character's main power, well, that's like saying my power is that I have a circulatory system. His power so take is that, he wants Wonder to Woman. I can breathe. Yeah. That's my yeah. power. Yeah. So Wonder Woman was made out of clay. So she's a super golem. So what else do you want from that? <laughs> she does. It's an invisible hard. Plane. That's pretty cool. That's why. I yes, because that. Too, by the way. Yeah, no, she can fly, but she also has an invisible plane, which is weird. To yeah. Me. <laughs> Who fixes that? Who the hell is her mechanic? She must have crashed it. Why? Why would Greek Amazons, still, we still wearing it and, and mud wrestling, how did they invent stealth technology before yeah. it's, it's this amazing conundrum? Like, you know, we're making our own swords, but hey, we've got this invisible jet. <laughs> we were um, just at a convention, too, where um, the theme was like, and how do we get here? So they do like this geek debate, and this year's debate was... Um, different, it was like almost like tournament style, and it was different vehicles that um, the people in, you know, pop culture or whatever have. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And Wonder Woman's Invisible Jet, I'm, I don't know if it won, but it was pretty much in there until the very end. I was just like, just the logic of people saying, like, you know, like that she has this. I forget what some of the arguments were, but I was like, these are great arguments. I never saw the validity <laughs> in having an Invisible Jet until just now. Like, good job, guys. Because clearly she must be invisible while she rides it, or maybe she's just sitting and flying, and everyone is bizarrely creeped up by it. Why does she have to squat to fly? Why does it take her so long to find parking? <laughs> yeah, the um, that one robot chicken sketch really like hammered that in there for me. Like when she's taking a, a shit in the invisible jet, and mm -hmm. um, and Superman's trying to talk to her, and she's like, "Oh, this is." I'm using the invisible uh, toilet. So I can't help but notice you didn't wash your hands. So that was Family Guy, in addition to the um, Lino using the Sword of Omens to give sight beyond sight to, <laughs> to watch Chitara use the bathroom. They made two weird uh, 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 pop culture watching women pee joke. Uh, that that just shows how disconnected the writers are. That they put three different teams of of of, of two guys snickering into one room, just collected on the scene, Let's and at the bottom, feed. at the bottom postscript, write page write page numbers and throw it together. Pretty much, uh, that's that's basically the most accurate thing I've heard in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean, 
As far as b- women bathroom stuff, uh, at that same convention, they had, you know, like, unisex bathrooms. So I went in the boys' bathroom because I had a less long line. And I peed for solidarity. And nothing bad happened to me. It was great. Really? You're sure you didn't have a have a transgender woman enter with, with, with a camera and a bunch of stirrups and, and duct tape just no. waiting around the corner? Right, because they don't do that. In fact, Any there was situation- a guy in there in a dress... Um, uh, yeah, that's, know, a, just, that's a con. That's, yeah. that's used to it. Literally, he was just, he, and he goes, oh, good, you're in here. Can you zip this up for me? That, so I uh-huh. was also helpful in the bathroom. <laughs> it was the greatest thing. I was like, I feel so connected to the world right now. And I got to pee really fast. And it was awesome. Right. Anytime a group of guys is in the bathroom and, and they, hear, they hear a girl yell, it's an emergency, does anybody care? The answer should be universally no, yeah. because we have all been there when we've needed to go. It's just basic humanity. It's basic humanity. And listen, unisex bathrooms means shorter lines for everybody. So Everybody poops. Everybody <laughs> poops. It's great. It's bringing the world together with the poops. The undies <laughs> of Wendy Way. Unity everyone. through poop. <laughs> yeah, poop unity. That's my new page. I have cos unity and I have poop unity. No one gets it. I mean, that ends up being this huge issue, too. I'll jokingly say on stage that that gender identity and sexual orientation are becoming for millennials what Polish last names were for us. Is you look at the sheet, what is this? How do I pronounce? What do you want to be called? What? All right, fine. How about friend? How about buddy? How does. The issue is. Everybody's eventually going to use the bathroom, no, no, no matter what they want to uh, identify with or ever. Either take it in the butt or put it in someone's butt. We're all human. Just kind of deal with it. Just really deal with it. You know who wants to give a crap about gender identities? Really nobody. But you know who wants to take a crap? Everybody. Yeah, exactly. Just be free. Exactly. <laughs> just, just let those bells out. <laughs> <laughs> You were gonna ask a Ghostbusters question that I totally derailed. I'm sorry. Was I? Yeah. Are uh, you Are you going to see the new Ghostbusters movie? What do you think oh, about I guess that? I was say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've been saying on stage that my new go- my new religion is called Ghostbusters, in which I uh, I profit from a terror of the afterlife, and then I and then I freak out like a, like a five year old whenever girls try to get involved. Did I say Ghostbusters? I meant Catholicism. I meant the GOP. I meant Mormonhood. I meant... The hate is so dismissible for me because Ghostbusters is fun. It's a great comedy. I don't care. It's either going to be a cool comedy or it's not going to be a cool comedy. People are Regardless, acting like Ghostbusters is like on par with Casablanca, which is like the strangest thing for me because it's like... Ghostbusters is so like yeah. Like, sorry. The reason Ghostbusters works is because Bill Murray does not want to be there and didn't want to be there. He's so uh, contrast to the rest of the environment while the rest of the world is going through what really is a horror Lovecraftian story. There is this ancient place that's going to open up a, a, a the final passage to allow this destroyer of worlds, and the undead cannot stop it. The dead will rise, and those there's Bill Murray. Yeah, what well, does Sigourney Weaver look like naked? Whatever. The the fact <laughs> yeah, that he yeah. does not want to be there is the contrast that makes the comedy. It's practically accidental. It's great comedy. It's very well directed. It's a bang out, wonderful, hilarious script that we've not seen its uniqueness in ages. It's fine. I remember there already being a girl Ghostbuster. Her name was Kate. Uh, was Kylie. She was voiced by the great Tara Strong. It was Extreme Ghostbusters, and it was fine. It was. Fine. Yeah, nobody. No. Yes. That. Extreme Ghostbusters. Anything? I that was out of it at that point. I, don't, I barely remember that one. Um, <laughs> but I was going to say, like, I, I think a lot of the people that do just are just spewing this hate. You know, like, I think they don't realize, like, your Ghostbusters aren't going away. Like, we are always going to have that. You know, those movies. Yeah, it's not like they're. It's not like they're trying to remake the Ghostbusters. It's a total reboot. Well, no, what I'm saying is, like, those movies. Those are your movies. Yeah. This movie. It's a Ghostbusters movie, but I'm sorry, this one is not for you. Exactly, like, it's not for you. Yeah, we didn't see people freak out over a new Star Wars, although because it, it's it's canonical, may, maybe, blah, blah. who cares? Either go see the, the lukewarm summer comedy, 
or don't, long story short, it doesn't matter. I saw Spy because I'm a Melissa McCarthy fan. I love campy that was uh, actually a really genre, good movie. We just genre that. summer movies. I love that Jason Statham finally took himself less seriously enough. It was hilarious. Yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted. And I, I got it. Like the, the previews for that movie did not do it justice. I yeah, thought. it looked like so corny, and then we watched it. That's why you can't like go by the trailers. You have to go see it. And that's the whole point of going to see a movie. <laughs> or even the, the the Deadpool movie. Did we? Did any of us see that coming? Not at all. <laughs> I, that my, they, yeah, that like, they did Deadpool correctly. I uh, yeah. My whole lead up to that was just like, please don't screw it up. Please don't screw it up. Please don't like like. Not even did it enter into my head that they might actually pull it off and pull it off well. I was just hoping it was competent, basically. Yeah, I mean, the director had said that for a decade. He was passing all around the script, and then before he knew it, all these gates started opening. And he got more and more scared, like, there's no way we have this kind of creative control. There's no way we have the writers that we want. They said yes. They said, uh, hey, Ryan, uh, I think we're doing it. I, I don't know what... I'm scared too, buddy. I'm scared too. But they've given us full permission, so let's do this. Yeah, I, I, I still can't believe that movie. Like, I'm just like, what? Like, they did it. Like, it was... I mean, I... After seeing that first trailer, I was like, there's no way that the movie's going to be, like, as good as that. That leaked, I, I say leaked with quotes around it, because they admitted it was, like, a thing, right? Yeah, they were like, yeah. let's leak it and see what happens. Um, so, I mean, after after that, I was like, there's no way the movie could be as funny as that one trailer. And then it was, and I was just so happy. And, you know, shock, shock, and this surprise, is- surprise. Sometimes they know what they're doing. <laughs> Not only was it a good movie, but we also, you know, got to see real life redemption for Ryan Reynolds. Oh, and he did, and he did make some Green Lantern jokes in there. Yeah. I caught them. He redeemed himself. Don't for Green Lantern let the and, costume be green yeah, or animated. He redeemed himself for that movie and for the, you know, uh, X Men Origins Wolverine. Um, so so genius. I feel, I feel almost bad that actors like you know, like Ryan Reynolds, like Ben Affleck, get get shit canned and get shit. For characters that they played, they didn't write the script. Like you know, it's they're not the writers of the movie. Yeah, so it's like, so much with what they're given. I know exactly, and so I mean, like as much shit as he gets for the Daredevil movie, it's like it did open doors for other things, like the awesome Daredevil TV show that everyone loves so much that I've yet to watch. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, world. <laughs> the one that somehow filmed in Hell's Kitchen, and as a New Yorker, I can tell you, Hell's Kitchen is four blocks by four blocks. It's got the highway on one side. And it's cut off at, uh, I think it's like 9th Avenue and 54th Street. That's where Book of Mormon is playing. <laughs> you can walk, you can jog it. It's, it's northern boundaries are New York Comic Con at the Jacob Javits Center and the Starbucks. That's the actuality that's of Hell's Kitchen. But because they film it everywhere in Queens, that's totally fine. You could have Daredevil just exist in different neighborhoods. And it just wouldn't make any difference. Like, like Daredevil in, um, Daredevil in, in the, the West Village, uh, the whole conflict of that is that Wilson Fisk won't come out to see, uh, Matt Murdock's one man show about his father. So he just talks shit about him over Twitter until, um, uh, until Wilson Fisk tries to release his one man show about his father. <laughs> that would be great. I would love to see that as a YouTube web series. Someone should do it. <laughs> <laughs> someone, someone did a great campy version of The Punisher. But it was set in the 1960s Adam West Batman. And the issue being, the Punisher remains the Punisher. He remains as violent and, unappro- and inappropriate. An uncontrollable psychopath. It's, it's genius. Like, I'm trying to remember what his childhood sidekick... Oh, his, his sidekick is child abuse. Oh my god, that's so great. To, to give you an idea about it, oh, it's it's so wonderful. Because yeah, the, I... the, the bad guys are just wearing shirts and letter pieces on their head. Yeah, I um, sadly am very versed in the world of Punisher because I had an ex who like thought he was the Punisher, um, and that was very disturbing for my life. It really was. So yeah, I can I can sympathize with that completely. All right. <laughs> now now we know. Um, the more you know. The, the Punisher ends up bringing up a very difficult for Western and comic book fans. We we thought we were done with the argument a decade or so ago that violent video games or violent media 
leads to us acting out in our violence. But as Americans, we do delegate and relegate force as the first and only necessary means toward any end. Yeah. There are very few there are very few shows, and this is the one thing why I keep harking back to Steven Universe, it's one of the few shows I've seen where a lack of violence or even empathy ends up solving a majority of the problems. It's hard to get away with that today. We are a myopic culture, and we have very much a, a, a two-faced argument in, in, in our society when it comes to using violence to stop something greater, or using violence to really stop anything. Yeah. Oh, well, I don't want to uh, I don't want to keep you here all night. Uh, you have anything coming up you'd like to tell people about? Yeah, sorry to end on a yeah. on an accidental we downer. Really, really for <laughs> we like, did. Yeah. We got like really existential in parts of this too. This is like a deep podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, then we've destroyed the medium. I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, dig dig jokes and, and and farting somehow. Bring it back to Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, the shit. To, we can't we can't teach anything. Yeah, dick jokes are well, all the way. <laughs> Well, I'll let you know that uh, I'm doing something new on my YouTube series. I'm reopening up uh, my old podcast. For those who are fans of tabletop RPG or horror, I'm running a serial horror narrative podcast in the tradition of Alice Isn't Dead, Welcome to Night Vale, The Black Tapes, and Tennis, and and uh, Limetown. It's called The Chroniclers of Darkness. You can find it on YouTube slash users slash Uncle Yo. Find it on any of my social media, my Twitter or my Facebook. I am running miniseries. Within the World of Darkness RPG world. I just got over a Geist the Sin Eaters, which is a supernatural um, ghost hunting detective story. And we've just started this Friday, Be Kind to Your Neighbors, a Vampire the Requiem miniseries. After every six episodes, the listeners decide where the story goes. Nice, that's pretty cool. Interactive podcasting, folks. It's the future. It really is. We shall we shall see. It's either that or narrate more Yaoi sci-fi novels for Audible.com. And I've read so many things you can do with a butt. Like put things in it and that's about it. <laughs> put things in I've it. Been producing, I've been producing them left and right. And uh, the, the pro- probably one of the better things is I, I, I can't do it under my name. I have to do it under a pseudonym. And I'm doing it under my, uh, under my brother-in-law's name. Just so one day... <laughs> One day we do the Google search. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm a bastard first, and whatever I'm doing second. <laughs> Any kid who's ever gotten in trouble has pulled the, uh, you know, who are you? I am my best friend's name. I, I've you definitely given that deal before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you like this podcast, we're evil geeks. But if you don't like this podcast, yeah. we're We're at the people. nerdist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, Uncle Yo, thank you so much for joining us and you know talking uh, talking with us today. Yay! Oh, guys, this was such a pleasure. Have a have a great time. Thank you for having me on. Thank Live, you. laugh, and pop. Uh, <laughs> this has been transmissions from the Evil Lair. Thank you for listening, folks.